0: Thank you very much uh, for your patience this morning and for your response. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 4, book of Deuteronomy chapter 4. You won't want to miss again to emphasize again the service tonight. uh, Let's come with desperate hearts to pray and cry out to God at 530 and then for the service and do everything you can to bring someone uh, that needs Jesus tonight. Deuteronomy 4, we're also going to read a few verses from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is almost an unheard of concept today. And while there are lots of good fathers, it is certainly not the ideal that it once was. What this culture is saying to us today is that we can do without a father. Thank you very much. Who needs them? This has been going on for quite some time. It's going, been going on long enough for the tragic consequences to begin to play out. In an article entitled Fathering Fatherless America, Dr. Scott Larson reports one in two children grow up without a father. That is catastrophic, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And in our inner cities, only one in five children, one in five, 20%, live with their father. A whole new mission field is developed in America, and that is fathering fatherless kids. Can we get along without fathers? That's the question. And what is the result? What are the consequences, even that are playing out here today in people's lives in the absence of this? And I wonder how many here are bearing the scars of the absence of a godly father or a father at all. Now, I am not going to focus on those things. I want to today talk about this in the context of the incredible asset that a godly father is. And this, of course, will be a challenge for men that are here to get a hold of God at this altar. We also know that in the absence, and every time I preach sermons like this, there are people, it happens on Mother's Day, it happens uh, on Father's Day, uh, it happens whenever I may preach on marriage, that there are people that have been deeply wounded and hurt in the atmosphere of those elements. And I'm cognizant of that. I'm very aware that there are people here that come from broken homes, come from chaos, have been hurt, wounded, betrayed, abused, and violated. But part of my message also this morning is the healing and the compensation that God offers those who may be in such a situation. There's 43 mentions in the Bible of the word or the term the fatherless. That's interesting, isn't it? In Psalm 68, the Bible says that God is a father to the fatherless. This is such a profound issue that God sees fit to compensate. God has a special compassion where there's an absence of a father or even a husband because it's the fatherless and the widow. And there's an understanding, scripturally, that if that's the case, there are particular disadvantages. But God sees that and compensates for that. This is part of the ministry of the church. It's deeply moving for me as a pastor to have some of the members of my congregation come on Father's Day and wish me a happy Father's Day because uh, I am, and some of the men in our congregation uh, are the closest thing and maybe the only thing that they know as a father. Part of the ministry, part of my ministry as a pastor is to be that in some cases. In the book of James, the Bible says, pure and undefiled religion before God and and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I want to preach and challenge you with a message I've entitled, The Godly Father, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. We're going to read a few verses from there. And then we're going to turn to chapter 6 and read a couple verses from there. Um, And I want to bring a message that I believe will help and encourage and heal. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? as the Lord our God is to us. For whatever reason, we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, And teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my word, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. And then turn a few pages over to Deuteronomy 6, and beginning in verse 6 And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, walk by the way, lie down, and rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let me just pray. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much today for your love, your compassion, Lord. God, I pray that you would touch every heart, every life. Let those who may be here wounded and scarred from the events of life be healed at these altars. Let them be comforted and let them feel the love of God the Father here today that heals every wound and mends every scar. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing and we give you praise in Jesus' name. I want to talk, first of all, about the nearness of God that is referred to in this scripture. This is a very profound and the most profound matter because most people's view of God is contrary to this. We don't view him as being near. He's distant. He's far away. He's unapproachable. People today can't conceive him. He's a theory. He's an ideal, not personal. And others just don't know Uh, agnosticism uh, or an agnostic is a person who thinks that there might be a God, but there's no way of knowing absolutely. A believer can even hold this rationale to some degree. Where is God? How close to me is he really? And I think that it's part of the reason why Christians, some of them, are not serious about the things of God and passionate and zealous. Why they're not committed and why they're not faithful and why sometimes they backslide and drift into sin and compromise because they drift from the revelation that God is near. The Apostle Paul made a fascinating statement in Acts chapter 17 so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. That has to be stated because we think he's far. How many of you in times of trouble and frustration and difficulty have felt alone and felt detached from God? Sometimes we feel alone from people. If you're here today and you've been hurt and wounded and and betrayed in life by people, people that are supposed to be close to you, uh, that translates spiritually uh, and we begin to think the same thing of God, uh, that he's distant, uh, that he's far away, uh, that he loves. If he's real, he loves and cares for uh, people other than me more than he does for me. We question whether God intervenes. We question whether he is willing to interact personally on our behalf. We wonder whether we can have a real personal relationship uh, and we rather wonder whether he is close, uh, not just near alongside, but inside uh, of our hearts. Uh, in our text, uh, the scripture rever- refers to uh, the God who is uh, near. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is near To us, the Lord there is acknowledging that there are other great nations. There are other peoples, and we read in the Bible from time to time about people from other nations, and God did prosper, and God did bless other nations, but there is a nearness that God has to the children of Israel that cannot compare with any other nations. There are great nations, there are nations blessed, but they are the only nation that has God so near. That word near means to be allied uh, or aligned with to be at hand to be there to be approachable it's a word that refers to a kinsman that's why God is referred to as a father and it is a term of personal relationship and this is what we as believers know to be true and this is a revelation that every single father here is challenged to embrace And be so very familiar with because your fatherhood and the success of it depends on you having this revelation. Ephesians 2 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken uh, down the middle wall uh, of separation. Uh, This is what the unbeliever, the backslider, the compromising Christian uh, uh, thinks uh, is that somehow we're separated from God, somehow he's distant, somehow he's not watching uh, and his oversight uh, is not uh, uh, aligned with our activities in life. Uh, There's a wall, there's a barrier that separates uh, and we know that that is the condition uh, when we are in sin, and when we are backslidden, God can only be an idea, not a reality, because of this middle wall of partition, this wall of separation that is constructed by virtue of our sin and our rebellion. And then, of course, we have the great verse in Revelation that says, Behold, I, Jesus, stand at the door of your heart and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. In that verse, he is near but not near enough. He is outside the door knocking. You hear the knock and you can also hear his voice through the door. He's close, he's near. As Paul said, he's not far from any one of you and you could be in that place right now. God is near, but not near enough. He's close, but not close enough. There's a door between the two. He's knocking. He wants to get in. What opens the door is your repentance, is you crying out and say, oh God, be merciful to me. I'm swinging the door wide open, and I'm I'm inviting you to come in. He's near right now, but not near enough. And in the scripture, it says again that God is, so near. No other people, uh, no other nation has God uh, who is so near, uh, so close, uh, and some here, he may be close, but not close enough, near, but not near enough. I love the psalm, verse 6 in Psalm 32, for this cause everyone who is godly shall pray, shall pray to you, O Lord, in a time when you may be found. You are my hiding place, you shall preserve me from trouble, you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. That's a God who's near, a God who is there, and a God who is your father. The second feature to this text is that he's not only a God who is near, but he is a God who speaks, he talks, to the point where you can hear his voice. Verse 8, And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I, the Lord, set before you this day? He is a God who is near, He's a God who intervenes. He's a God who interacts. He's the Father that holds. He's the Father that is committed. He's the Father that is close, but He's also the Father that speaks and talks and ministers and communicates. And we have a lot of fathers today who may be near, but they don't talk very much. I have a statistic. I won't read the entire paragraph, but it states that... Uh, A father only has uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of three minutes or less uh, of meaningful dialogue with their children. There are people here, you can't remember a single meaningful thing that your father ever spoke into your life. And in our text here, he is a father who talks, he talks daily. He talks regularly. He takes time to speak. Not only is he near, but he longs to pour himself out by virtue of speaking meaningful utterances into your life. There are a lot of people who make the statement, and they say God is everywhere, but they don't really mean it. God being everywhere is a great revelation But it doesn't carry the weight of what this carries. He's near, and he's near enough for you to hear his voice. In the word, in the book of uh, Hebrews, in the Amplified Translation, the Bible says, For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power, making it active, operative, energizing, and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword penetrating to the divining line of the breath of life, your very soul and the immortal spirit, and of joints and marrow, the deepest parts of our heart and of our nature, exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging our very thoughts. And not a creature exists that is concealed from his sight, but all things are open and exposed and naked and defenseless to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Listen. God does not only want to be near you, he wants to speak to you. This is referred to in our text. God's voice is referred to as the law that I have set before you. His word is there. His voice is audible. We have access. We have a spiritual ear, and we can hear his voice. So then, having said that, let's talk about the godly father. What a father does matters. Where a father is matters, but what a father does matters so very much. So the question is, and this is what's being dealt with in our text, how are your children going to know That God is a God who is near and a God who speaks. That is the centerpiece of the godly father's assignment. Those two revelations. Verse 9, the latter part of it says, Teach them to your children and to your grandchildren of all the things that you do as a father. This is front and center and it is primary to your role as a godly father. You're to provide for your children, you're to protect your children, You're to love the mother to your children. You're to work on having a great marriage that your children can watch, and as they observe that, it's gonna help them through life. You are to set a good example for your children, all of those things, but first and foremost, the scripture says that God is a God who is near, and he is a God who speaks, and that is what you are to teach your children. In the second verse that I read, Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now I'm going to get to the practical expression of how you go about teaching your children and the Bible gives us instruction here and we'll get to that in a moment but I want to talk about this first before we get to that before you do anything there's a beginning point to godly fatherhood and I want to talk about for a moment where all godly fatherhood starts you can do some of the right things you may pull off being well thought of by your children. They love you as a father. They cling to you. They adore you. And that may be in place, but that doesn't mean you're a godly father. A godly father has particular attributes. And it's your job and responsibility at this altar this morning to secure those attributes as part of the man that you are. Both of the verses that I mentioned, read from, refer to where godly fatherhood starts. It's verse 9 of chapter 4 and verse 6 of chapter 6. Only take heed to yourself, and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Godly fatherhood begins with a righteous stewardship of your own heart and your own relationship with God. And there is so much writing on this. A man who forgets where he came from spiritually. A man without a close, deep, profound, uncompromising, Jesus-first relationship with God cannot be a godly father. You can be a good father. I'm not talking about that. There are a lot of men that aren't even Christians uh, that we would have to say they're a good dad, stayed married, loved uh, his wife, uh, and nurtured his children. They just weren't Christians uh, and didn't teach them uh, about the God who is near and the God who speaks. So we're not talking about being a good dad. We're talking about being a godly father. And that begins with us being a righteous steward of our relationship with God. This comes first. This is the beginning point. Your children need to come into the world under the influence of a man in an uncompromising pursuit of the will of God. What kind of world are you bringing your children into? It's not just what you do, and I want you to get this. It is the man that you are. And this scripture is a warning because it underscores what can happen, what does happen, and what may have happened in the hearts of some men that are sitting here today. And it seems obvious, doesn't it? But it comes with a warning about a very real possibility, and this is especially relevant when it comes to the Father, because when a father doesn't take heed and doesn't diligently keep and forgets and departs, this has profound consequences because of the power of impartation that flows from the spirit of a father. That's why you have to guard. Because what is inside of your heart, uh, the attitudes, the spiritual dimension uh, is what is going to flow from one dimension to the other. And I hear parents so often speak so flippantly, uh, my relationship with God is not what it should be. I don't pray like I pray like I should or read my Bible. Do you have any idea what you're saying? And the hardship that you may be imposing on your children and the incredible advantage that you can give them if you would simply get a hold of yourself, return to the altar in brokenness and repentance. This is not automatic. All of these are spoken in the durative tense. Take heed to yourself. That's a daily exercise. We live in a wicked, sinful world filled with temptation. Uh, Fathers are being assaulted and they're being bombarded. Uh, And it's not easy to be a father today. We have to be a soldier, as it were, in enemy territory. Uh, And we have crosshairs on us. The devil targets. Uh, And so by virtue of that, you have to take heed to yourself. And I would say that some of you have been taken out of the fight and you don't even know you've been taken out of the fight because it's happened so slowly over time. And the loss of zeal and passion and enthusiasm and prayer and Bible reading and pursuing the will of God has long since been diminished. And you're still in church, still coming. Your kids think you're a great dad and you are in some ways, but not fulfilling the definition of a godly father. Let me read the verse again. Only take heed to yourself. Diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. That's a possibility, that the force and the power and the validity of the radical conversion that you, can, that you experienced in seasons past can diminish, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Do you know? how hard it is to get someone who's been compromising for years to get them back on fire for god almost i would say impossible all things are possible i believe that but i've been pastoring for a number of years and i've watched individuals both men and women fire passion zeal and then over time nothing overt no still in church, but it just diminishes over a long period of time, and you kind of settle in uh, to a Uh, A a compromised way of living for God uh, to try to challenge that person who's in that position uh, back to where they once were is so very hard because we get comfortable. uh, We've got control of our affairs. Everything seems to be going okay. It's very hard to bring conviction to that individual because outwardly everything seems to be okay. But I'm trusting uh, that such powerful conviction is going to fall over this congregation that not just fathers uh, but every Christian, every teenager, every mother, every single woman, every single man is going to find a place to pray at this altar and get back and get on fire for God like we know we need to be. But back to our fathers. The word there to take heed means to watch and be on guard. It's a military term. And it refers to the alertness that a sentry needs to have when the troops that he is watching over are in enemy territory. It's one thing to train to be a sentry uh, while you're here in America when there's no real threat, uh, 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 but it's another thing when you're in enemy territory, and any movement, any passing shadow in the middle of the night uh, could be a sniper, it could be an enemy. When that man goes to sleep, uh, they court-martial him. It's a serious offense, and with that intensity, you need to guard your heart. Every father is responsible to be alert and aware and ready. Pay attention to the condition of your heart because the danger is if you don't guard it. It diminishes and deteriorates. Enemies are able to break through. And again, this is so critical because of the principle of impartation. Whatever attitudes develop are the ones that we transfer to our children. Think about that. I tell fathers this, they're in sin, perhaps, criminal activity, drug addiction, alcoholism, and I'll challenge them with love and say, listen, do you realize what you're risking for your children? And I tell them Uh, quote the scripture for them in Exodus chapter 34 that the sins of the father will be passed on to the children to the third and the fourth generation. Uh, Now that father who may be violent, uh, may be addicted to drugs and alcohol uh, would say that he loves his children and I don't have any doubt that he does in the way that he knows how to love uh, but he doesn't love enough uh, to get a hold of God in his life uh, and to cut the madness and quit the sin uh, so that that isn't imparted into his children and we know uh, that Uh, uh, fathers who are drunkards and alcoholics and violent uh, and suicidal, uh, their children uh, will have the same propensities. That's not a Christian uh, observation only. Sociologists say that. Crime runs in families. Suicides run in families. Divorce runs in families. Violence uh, runs in families because the sins of the father are passed on to the children of the third and the fourth generation uh, and so goes uh, the cycle from one generation to the next. You may have said, I don't want to be like my father. I don't want to do what he did to me. Well, what are you doing to your children? Are you giving them an advantage by virtue of how you're going about living your life? And the scripture gives us the, I think it's a kind of a frightening possibility. The things of God can depart from your heart. That word means to cause, to turn aside, to remove, to take away, to put away, to depose, to come to an end. If you are not uh, taking care of the deposits that God's made in your life, they will leach out and depart. And you're going to open the door and find the house empty. If you don't keep, Take heed, diligently keep the things of God can depart. Don't let God find you as a father with the precious deposits that have been made in your life in years past, having departed from your heart. Let me talk about the father's challenge. Here it is. The Father's, Godly Father's responsibility is to make the God who is near to you, near to them. To make the Father who speaks to you, speak to them. This is what I meant by the capacity to impart and there's something very profound that God has instituted in the relationship of a father with his children, like father, like son. We know that old saying and that old sentiment, but it's not just a nice sentiment. It's a very profound and a very powerful truth. God intended the father to be the transferer of spiritual things. And this has a practical application, of course. When a father goes about his life with passion, with zeal, with love, and is successful at what he does in marriage and in his business, his job, there's a high likelihood that the sons and the daughters who come up underneath that are going to want to emulate that. That's why you see so many sons. It doesn't always play out that way. It doesn't have to. But a lot of sons do what their fathers did because when they see their father doing with passion what he does, there's something that attracts them. You have generations of families, for example, that are, that are baseball players, race car drivers. Uh, uh, the uh, Petty family, uh, I think, has four generations, grandfather, son, grandson, and great-grandson, that are all race car drivers because the sons observe the fathers uh, doing what they did with passion and with zeal. This also, as I've already indicated, has a negative application. That when there's sin and when there's uncleanness and unrighteousness, the sons very often, even though they don't want to, you know, I became. And I share this when I preach sermons uh, where I share my testimony. I grew up in a home where my mother taught us to hate my dad would sit us down and tell us what a rat, drunkard, and despicable person he was. And so I grew up hating my father, but I became him. An alcoholic at an early age, addicted to drugs, and violent and emotionally uh, uh, just a basket case of anger and rage and frustration. The spirit of suicide gripped my life at an early age. You can't stop. You know, the word, uh, we have a word in our language that kind of characterizes it, and it's the word resemblance. Resemblance. If you are going to have a child, I can take the role of a prophet, but not really, and tell you what your child is going to look like. Whether you like it or not, they're going to resemble you. If you don't like your face, then don't have children, because they're going to have it. And most mothers, when the baby comes out, they look to see if the ears are sticking out or the nose is crooked like theirs or some other attribute of themselves they don't like because it's in our physical DNA. We're going to resemble them in some way, and it's uncanny how identical uh, this plays out uh, uh, and how close the resemblance can be, but this also has a spiritual application that the spirit and the emotion those things are also imparted and there's going to be a resemblance there. So let me close by parsing this text a little bit because not only are these just sentiments that are communicated here, but God uh, tells us how we are to teach our children. A father is to teach his sons and daughters about the God who is near and the God who speaks. Deuteronomy, in the one text that we read, you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk. You shall talk. How much do you talk to your children about the things of God? The statistic that I read said that a father average has three minutes or less of any meaningful conversation with his children on a daily basis. I'm not saying you, but just society-wide, these surveys have been done, and there's some that even say it's 20 seconds or 45 seconds. You shall teach that. You can't teach without talking. So it says you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Now that refers to a particular time of the day. No matter how busy you are in life, all of us have downtime where we've got to sit. That's what we do. The work of the day is done, but the day is not over yet. It's time to rest because of the day's activity, but it's not time to go to bed. It's evening in most cases. There's no more pressing business uh, that necessarily has to be done. Nothing has to be done in the moment. Uh, And so the scripture is saying that when you're at that time of the day, you need to start talking. And it doesn't mean all and only about the things of God. I'm not taking a super spiritual approach uh, that every word out of your mouth has to have a a spiritual component. I'm not saying that. I am just saying uh, that it needs to be a good part of it. You talk to them about the things of God. You're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. No plans, nothing urgent. You're talking, you're sitting, reposing, and you can discuss and talk about anything under the sun. And at that time, the Bible says you need to take advantage of that down, sitting down time and talk to your children about the things of God. And it refers to meaningful conversation. Conversations that are spiritual. You know what the enemy of this is? The enemy of this is devices. I was sitting in church, and this really bothers me. And I'm, you know, I'll make a, su- I'll start by making a suggestion. Pastor Mitchell was preaching Friday night. He's a great man of God. He's 85 years old. He's not going to be around forever. And we have this great opportunity to hear him preach. The woman sitting in front of us had about a seven or eight-year-old boy. He's old enough to listen to a sermon, to comprehend what is being said, and for mom and dad to talk to him maybe about it during the altar call or after church. No, not this kid. He's got a device playing video games with a pair of headphones on and is totally oblivious to what's going on around him. If you're doing that to your kids during church, you're hurting them and you're doing a disservice. And if that's what's going on in your home, you know, sitting with mom and dad is pretty boring compared to the iPad and the device. They don't want to sit and talk to you. And the reason they don't want to sit and talk to you is because you fed an appetite to for video games, and it's much more exciting to shoot and to steal a car and to get in a fight on a video game than it is sitting there, talk to dad about the things of God. And you keep feeding that appetite. You keep giving them the devices. You don't want to be bothered. You don't want to answer their questions. You don't want to sit and have a meaningful dialogue with them when you're sitting. Fathers need to have meaningful conversations with their children. And it even says what to talk about. Teach them to your children and your children's and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb. Your children need to know everything about your testimony when God first spoke to your heart, dealt with you. Uh, They need to know in detail all about your conversion, uh, what God has done in your life. They need to know uh, that is going to go a long way uh, to bringing the reality of Christ into their life. This is what your dad experienced. When I show my uh, kids, and I, uh, in fact, we were going through pictures, sister, uh, or my wife, she doesn't like me calling her sister Renee in front of you all, but uh, my wife Renee and I were going through some pictures and I found this little picture of my wife and I on our wedding day. I had hair down to here. I had a beard. Believe it or not, I did. I was only 19. I had hair down to here. I had a big old beard. She looks like she's about 13 years old. She was 18 at the time. I was 19 and uh, were there on our wedding day. And I took that picture and I put it in my little driver's license window uh, in my wallet. And every time I take it out, if somebody asks me for my license or they want to see my identification, I'm tempted to pull that out and show them this is who I was. And my kids know all about who I was before I got saved. They know about the day of their conversion, my conversion. They could stand up here and articulate it to you as clearly as I can. And God said, you tell your children about the day you stood before God in Mount Horeb. They need to know. They'll remember, and it will help them. And you do that when you're sitting down. You know, there's a tragic side to this when it's not happening in the book of Judges. The Bible says, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, they'd passed away. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. Why is that? Why? The generation that's passed away had an incredible experience with God. A powerful outpouring of God's spirit. Maybe it's because they never talked to them. They never got him on their lap, sat down with them at the sitting down time of the day and shared with them the great glory that God had performed on their behalf. And this generation grew up oblivious, unknowing of the things of God. And maybe they never talked to him when they were sitting down. The Bible also says in the text that we read, you shall teach them when you sit and when you walk. So, this is another time of the day that the process of impartation takes place when you walk by the way. That is when you have business, uh, when you are going somewhere, uh, when you are working, when you are interacting with people uh, uh, in order to take care of and transact the business uh, of the day that's necessary, so it's not just when you're sitting, uh, but when you're able to. uh, You take a son, a daughter, uh, uh, or you take your children with you uh, as you're walking, uh, as you're interacting, as you're working, as you're running errands, as you're interacting with people, uh, you take them along with you, uh, and you use that time as well uh, so that they can see you in action, uh, how you live, how you function, uh, how you talk, uh, how you interact with people, uh, and you use that uh, as a teaching instrument. When my family and I moved to London in April of 1987, My son, Joe, was 11, and something happens in a missionary family in most cases, and it happened here, that when you move into a foreign nation, the kids are very insecure, and my son, Joe, uh, got bullied in school because he was an American, he was a Yank, and so he didn't make friends right away, and so what that did was it caused him to really bond and connect with me. He went everywhere with me. And in the pioneering of that church, every off night, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, he and I are in the car. uh, We're going from house to house, visiting the people we'd been praying for, people that were coming to church. uh, And he was able to watch that. And at the time, uh, I just wanted to spend time with my son. I'm not thinking of uh, uh, any spiritual dynamics that are taking place. uh, uh, But it's a miracle, and it's amazing to me uh, that my son grew up wanting to do what I was doing. uh, And he saw pastoring and pioneering uh, uh, at its hardest, uh, pioneering a church in an inner city, London, England. Uh, It was agonizing and difficult and hard. uh, And he watched all that. And I'm thinking in my mind, the last thing he's going to want to do is preach. Uh, But as he uh, gets into his latter teen years, 17, 18, uh, there's there's an undeniable call of God on his heart to preach the gospel. And he started pastoring when he was 20 years old. Donald Trump. had a rule, and this is a guy who's a sinner and all the above, but he had a rule because he had his office in the same building where he lived, and so his children were instructed, as soon as you get out of school, you come to my office, and whether he was negotiating a multi-million dollar deal whether he was talking to staff and employees and managers and supervisors, uh, when he, whether he was in a meeting, uh, it was known that at a certain time, Donald Trump's kids are going to walk into the office uh, and they're going to hang out and they're going to watch Dad. All of his kids are doing what he's doing today. And the spiritual application, of course, when you're walking along the way, they can see you. They can, you can talk to them. And you could take advantage of the opportunity to teach life lessons as you explain to them why you're doing what you're doing. The third element here is that you're to teach them when you lie down. Now, that's an interesting time of the day as well. When you lie down, that is when the day is over. That is why when the final activities, there's nothing left to do, when you lie down, there's a particular mood that takes over a household, when the day is actually finished. This is usually the time when we read to our children. It may be a time when you pray with your children, when you have a final opportunity to make a deposit or to talk to them. Maybe they had trouble that day. Maybe they're, maybe they're crying. Maybe they're upset about what they're going to be facing the next day. You take advantage of that special time when you're all lying down and the day is done to speak something uh, that can have an impact In their lives. And the Bible also says, when you rise up, this is the beginning of the day. When plans are formulated, when the vision for that day is established, what do you want to accomplish? your children. It's the beginning of their day. That's when you can take an interest. uh, What are you doing today with the idea? Maybe I can help them. Maybe I can, maybe I can make a deposit that will give them some confidence uh, about the test that's coming, about the challenges uh, that they're going to face. Uh, At the beginning of the day, when nothing yet has been done, uh, when things are going to be done, we haven't gone to school, haven't gone to work yet. Uh, Maybe there's some things uh, where they need encouragement. They need to be given in hope and confidence and some guidance and direction. A, A godly father, you see, is cognizant of all these varying opportunities to teach your children about the God who is near and the God who speaks. The most important feature and what all of this requires is a father who is transparent, a father who is physically present because you can do none of this without physical presence. And a father who is willing to live a life sufficient to be called a godly father. I don't want to be called a good father. That's not good enough because if I don't teach my children, if they don't grow up with conviction, a God who's near brings conviction right makes us aware of our sin and our compromise keeps us uh, from doing wrong uh, and a god who speaks uh, sensitizes the hearts of our children uh, to listen to a sermon to read their bible uh, and to listen to the voice of god dealing with their hearts and those two features are going to make such a powerful contribution and only a godly father can make that real i want every head bowed and every eye closed Thank you so much for your patience this morning with the little bit of a different offering and the little extra time I took with that, plus the sermon that you've heard and sat through this morning. And as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, nobody's moving around for a moment. I know that a sermon like this brings to the surface very deep and very real, and very serious issues. And I want to say, first of all, you may never have known a father. You may have been hurt and wounded in life. Probably nobody can hurt you more than a father. And look at the world we live in. Only 20% of children in inner cities live with their father. Half of all children will spend at least some time without their father in the home for extended periods of time or forever. Not a good development. There's no way to compensate for the father who's absent. No amount of money, no amount of anything will compensate for that. And this altar may be for the purpose of needing healing. You're carrying around woundings and scars, anger, aggressiveness. You need healing. You need to let Jesus touch your heart with his love. It makes all the difference in the world. Ezekiel says he'll take out the hard heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Just like The potter took the clay and put it on the potter's wheel and fashioned it into a vessel that he wanted so God will take your life, your heart. No matter what it has become thus far, God can begin it again. Start fresh and start new and make you into the woman, into the man, into the person that he created you to be with love, with forgiveness, with a relationship with God. He can forgive your sin, wash you clean, make you whole, heal you from the deep scars and wounds that sin may have produced in your life. And as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, nobody's moving around for a moment. If that describes you, and maybe you know in your heart you really need Jesus, you keep going the direction that you're going, you're going to blow your life up. That's what you're headed. You're following the cultural norms of today, which are destructive, divorce, Relational chaos. It may be normal as far as culture is concerned, but it's catastrophically destructive. Look at the consequences. Dealt with a young girl the other day, and it's a new phenomenon, or it's new to me. I know it's been going on for a while, but it seems like I've been dealing with more and more of it, who's cutting herself. She's a cutter, what we call a cutter filled with self-loathing and self-hatred. She tries to compensate for the pain inside by creating pain on the outside, hoping that that will be the focus, the pain on the outside, because the pain on the inside is too much for her. It won't work. Only Jesus can heal. Only his love poured into your heart can make you whole and healthy. And you're here this morning, you're not saved, you're not right with God, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you want to know Him. You want the forgiveness and the love that I'm talking about. I'm talking about changing your life. Whosoever is in Christ is a new creation. Old things are passed away, all things become new. Second Corinthians 5.17 says that. Jesus said you must be born again. You can be today if you can acknowledge your sin, repent of it, and receive him as your Savior. And if you'd like to do that, I can help you. I can pray for you. And I want to believe God to work a miracle in your life. And all I'm asking you to do is allowing me to pray for you right where you're seated. Nobody's looking, every head bowed. I want you to do one thing, simple thing. And that is just slip your hand up, saying, Pastor, pray for me. I know I need Jesus. I don't want to leave here the way I came. I need forgiveness for all my sin. Would you pray for me? God bless you, my brother. Thank you. I see that hand. Is there anyone else? You need to make a decision. God bless you. I see that. Thank you. God love you. Amen. There's others here today. Lift your hand right up so that I can see it. Amen. I see that. Thank you. God love you. This is a day of a miracle. A day of change and transformation. A day that you can know what it is to have your sins forgiven and your life changed. Please, don't choose to continue to live with the hatred and the bitterness and the anger and the resentment and the jealousy and the envy and the fear and the guilt. You don't have to live that way. You can be clean from the inside out. You can have real joy, real peace. And if you know someone who's recently been saved, can you not see the change in them? My mother and father, my dad was a lifelong hard liquor alcoholic. My mother was mentally ill, neurotic. When they came and visited my wife and I, saw what Jesus had done, My mother fell on her knees in front of me when I was sitting on the couch, grabbed my hand, and with tears in her eyes said, Paul, whatever it is that you have, I want it for myself. I can see something so different in your life. I'd been on drugs. I'd been a rebel. I'd caused them so much torment, and they came and visited us in Tucson from Los Angeles and saw Jesus all over our lives, saw the change in our hearts. Can you not see that? Something is real. Jesus makes himself real in people so that you can see it. Let your light shine so that others may see the good work of God. Could you raise your hand and say, yes, that is what I need. Pray for me today in Jesus' name. God bless you. I see that. Anyone else? Maybe you're backslidden. You're away from God. You're not living the way you know you should be living. And you need to rededicate your life to Jesus. I spoke a little bit about that this morning. Without exploring that any further right now, you know you're backslidden and away from God and you need to lift your hand right now. God bless you, I see that. Anyone else? Lift your hand right up. All right, if you raised your hand, I want you to get up out of your seat right now and come and meet me here in the front. Come on, brother, right here in the front. God love you. Over here on my left. Over here on my right. Amen, thank you. What's your name? Tony, Tony, you need Jesus. Have you ever prayed before? received Jesus before, but you need to rededicate your life. Amen. God's going to help you. This is Alex. He's going to pray with you. God bless you, my brother. Amen. God's going to help you. This is John. He's going to pray with you, okay? Amen. Anyone else you lifted your hand? I want you to come. Let's never take for granted the power of an altar where people can come and receive Jesus. This is a great opportunity for you to come right now. Don't miss it. What in your life could possibly be keeping you from getting saved, coming to Jesus, turning away from your sin and the direction that it's taking your life? There are believers here. This altar is a place of healing from the scars of past betrayal. Maybe you have hatred for your father. You need to let that go. You need to forgive. I know it's hard. I know the scars are deep and I know this is heavy, but I've seen so much deliverance take place at altar calls just like this. You can't go through your life hating anyone. And when you hate your dad, that brings a particular curse. Even though he may have been unkind or even worse, you've got to let that go and stop living your life in reference to your hatred for him. You can love him, you can pray for him, and maybe he'll get saved. I don't know the future, I don't know outcomes, I just know that you need healing yourself. And this altar is for you. And of course, there are fathers here. You need to make a beeline to this altar. It's not good enough to be a good dad, to have morals. We need men that will be godly fathers. And that's going to require a price paid. That's going to require sacrifice. That's going to require you getting a hold of God at this altar and really repenting maybe returning to your first love. Let's all stand. Altars are open. No singing just yet. Just play the piano, and I want you to...